We're outside an 18th century townhouse in the historic area of Spitalfields in East London at the start of a journey which will take us via Walthamstow to Epping Forest. This house in Fournier Street was built around 1726 by the carpenter and gentleman William Taylor for his own occupation, as the documents have it, but it was subsequently leased by silk weavers. And we're here to weave our own web of story and song for Folk on Foot. Inside the house, we're meeting the founders of the East London band Stick in the Wheel. They've been called folk revivalists with a punk attitude, and their latest album, Follow Them True, was described as precision folk with anger, lust and blood. I suspect we're in for an exhilarating time. Nicola Keery and Ian Carter should have no problem recording on location. Some of their tracks have been recorded in their kitchens at home or above a North London tube station, and their last album was mostly recorded in an open-plan office at a warehouse in Basildon, in Essex, where their percussionist works. And here they are. Good morning. Hello. Hello. <laughs> we haven't rung a bell. Does it do a clanging noise? I don't know. I'm Let's hoping for it. Hello. Hello. Hello, nice to see you. I'm Matthew Hello. Bannister Hello. from Hello. Folk on Foot. Hello, nice to meet you. See Hello. you. Just Nicola. Hello. Zia. Yeah. Right, come on in, come on in. I didn't catch your name. Ben. Ben, Ben. Oh, nice yeah. to meet you. Oh, amazing house. Oh, thank you. No, I'm very lucky, absolutely. This, this is your house? Yeah. Have you done a lot of work on it? Yes, loads. Two and a half years of work. It's so, won an award. It's won oh, really? two awards. Two awards. Two awards. Yeah. 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 Because, because you've restored it in a very sensitive way. Yeah, it's very Georgian in its restoration. So. And why did you do that? Because you have a pride in the, the history of it? I think so. I think I sort of couldn't believe we were allowed to buy it when we saw it. It sort of feels like it should belong to the nation, not to us. And so therefore you feel a responsibility to it. Yeah, it's been here 300 years. Right. So it'd be nice if we could do another 300. And it's in extraordinary nick. So, like the staircase, it's from 1726, the house. And it was built by a master carpenter um, to sort of show off his wares. He lived in it and he built it. Um, so there's got incredible woodwork all around the house as a sort of display case for stuff when people came around, potential clients. He said, well, you could have a staircase like this and so on. It's wonderful. It's the wonderful curving balustrade at the bottom here. And if you look all the way up, you can see an extraordinary mural painted on the ceiling by Riccardo Cinali, who lived here in the 70s and 80s. Uh, which is a special mural because not only can you see the man's cock, but you can see his anus. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> and I, indeed, I can. As I look up one, two, three floors. Yes, very spectacular site. You're very welcome. Come, come, have come up. Yeah, come yeah. up. Thank you. Uh, this is Dylan Thomas's garden gate. It was thrown into the estuary when they were doing up his place in Larne, and uh, an artist called John Muzzlehead was rescued it, uh, and we bought it from Norwich and we went I thought this might be the room you'd like to use because it's the. Nicest room, but who knows what acoustics you want, so this is... Oh, this is beautiful. So this is the first floor drawing room? Yes. This is the, the person we bought it from. We used to call it the Piano Noble. This is the, grand, the grandest room in the house. Here. And it's, is it wood panelling on the walls it's here? It's all wood panelling, all original wood panelling, apart from that bit of wall there, which is where I was in the 60s. But all this is, yes, yeah, 1726. And then, and then a spectacular fireplace at the end as well. Yes, that's uh, 
Kilkenny marble, I think it is. It's got fossils and things in it. We put that in. There was, at some point, the fireplace had been removed, so we found one that was the right age for the house and put that in. So. Wow. And there's a bit of a clue to your profession, because there are three BAFTA awards. Yes, on the those, my wife, uh, she won all those, actually, yes. All oh, right, what, for uh, doing what? We, made, we had a TV company who made lots of food television programmes. Right. So those are for The Naked Chef and for Kitchen Nightmares. Has Gordon Ramsay been around? He's never been around, actually, no. Jamie Cameron, unfortunately, my wife died last year, so Jamie oh, Cameron cooked at her wake. Well, now you've got stick in the wheel in your city. I know, wonderful. <laughs> Exciting, that's good. Yeah. And they're going to come and they're going to sing for us. I'm very pleased. I so hope you'll sing the blind beggar of Bethnal Green. That's what I'm hoping for. Oh, so, wow. yeah, yeah. We might manage a couple of those. Excellent. I might. Yeah, that'd be very good. It's of a blind beggar who had lost his sight, and he had a daughter most beautiful, bright. Let me seek my fortune, dear father, said she, and so beautifully was charming Betsy. She set out of Romford as of a saint And arrived in London the very same day Let me seek my fortune, dear father, said she And the favour was granted to charming Betsy This was, this was the weaver's loft, or some of them were weaver's lofts, where things were woven. This is where Queen Victoria's coronation gown was woven, in this loft here. In this very um, room? In this room, according to Wikipedia, but I'm willing to go through it. I didn't write it, so <laughs> you know, as I didn't put it there, I'm willing to believe it. Yeah. It has one source to it, so it must be um, true. And we know that weavers worked in the house. Yeah, yeah. And it was leased to weavers for a time, wasn't Yeah, it? that's right, for a long time, absolutely. And there's a song about weaving. Yeah, there's two songs about weaving. That you're going to sing yeah. for us. Yeah. Now, hopefully Edith won't bark too much in the middle of that weekend. I'm a fallen weaver as William Man was. I've now to eat and I've worn out my clothes, me clocks And so you thought you'd bring us here because of the weaving connection. Yeah, and um, like Ian and I both come from East End families, so at some point, well, they may not have lived in this exact house, but we would have had lodgings near here. So that's really kind of important to us, like yeah. our backgrounds. And did you grow up in London or did you grow up outside London? Kind of on the outskirts. So Walthamstow is where Ian and I met, and we both grew up in Chingford. Um, but, yeah, our families have kind of gradually, from the centre of town, like a lot of people f who were working people around this kind of area, once you can, you go. <laughs> Do you regard yourselves as Londoners? Yeah. 
Yeah, oh, no, you can't not be. I mean, even though, like, say, from growing up in Chinkford, which is just on the border of Wolfram State, it's still London, because it was made part of London in, like, the 60s when we won the World Cup. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I think everyone got happy and gave everyone a squeeze and went, all right, you're part of London. But my, mainly it was because, like, my family got there because they moved out of Bow just at the end of the war, so that they come in and sort of moved into the, all the new houses that were built. My dad's from Forest Gate and my mum's from Cornwall, and they met in Plymouth, and... I grew up for the first couple of years in Cornwall and then we moved into my granddad's front room in Leighton and we lived there until we found a house. The Forloom Weaver is a song that has probably existed for, you know, over 300 years and it's about the people who were skilled artisans but through no fault of their own ended up with no work. Four looms were, was the amount of looms you were legally allowed to operate. That was like early health and safety. It was like you weren't allowed to operate any more than four. So if you could operate four, it meant you were really good at what you did. And because they operated four looms, it meant that they didn't have any other job. There, there would be people that might have a small hold in one loom, so they're taking a little bit of work. But if the cotton famine happened and they didn't have any work, they would have their farm to rely on. But if you operated four looms, you didn't do anything else. That was it. So if the cotton famine happened then, which happened a few times, I understand, you really were in trouble. I'm a we do the song is really that we can relate to that fact of being skilled people but like you know recession hits you're out of work that's yeah. it i wonder if singing it here has a different resonance you know because of the history of the building and whether you feel that it, it oh, takes totally. on a new life yeah just performing it like you thinking wow i'm in this place where this actually used to happen and you're just like trying to think about all the people that it happened to before you your ancestors the people around in the community it does resonate with me very much so you've got another weaving song that you might sing here for us in a, in a slightly different vein yep um so we both grew up actually as a lot of people in the 70s did watching bagpuss and that influence on 
people, well, particularly us actually, can't be underestimated. It, it really pervaded our childhood in ways that weren't apparent really at yeah. first, but now, like, well, Ian will tell you. So it was Sandra Kerr and uh, John Faulkner and a couple of other people that sort of wrote all the music. And actually, all the music in Bag Puss is based on traditional melodies or traditional words or whatever. And if you think about, like, most people of our generation We'll be able to pull a song out of Bagpuss. Well, they're old traditional folk songs. And actually, like, I think you don't get the credit. It, the people who mention Bagpuss and they little, like, laugh and you go, oh, yeah, Bagpuss. Actually, they did more than anybody else, really, to put that folk music in people's consciousness. You know, you grow up listening to stuff that's going on in your house and da-da-da-da, and then it sort of gradually seeps in. And Bagpuss absolutely did that, you know. The instrumentation, the melodies, all of that stuff. I think mm. it's so important. Like, this song is based on a Scottish tune called Nancy Whiskey, which is again about a weaver, but about a weaver who lost it all to whiskey. Neither of us could play the spoons, but we kind of we managed learned. to. Yeah, we learned. <laughs> Not about to say that, we can, all, we can all play the spoons. We boom, <laughs> getting out and play spoons. <laughs> Personally, I could sit here all day in this sitting room, actually. Oh, it's so it's beautiful. Funny. But we're, we're going to move on to Walthamstow. Mm -hmm. Are we going to walk? No, 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 we're going to get the train. Oh, good. Thank yeah. goodness for that. It's yeah. just called Folk on Foot, but it's quite a long way to Walthamstow yeah. from here, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I've, I don't think I've ever walked from here to Walthamstow because it's too far. We're taking a very modern form of transport on a very ancient kind of a route, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Like one of the reasons for like bringing you on the train is it kind of mimics the way many people from the East End have moved out into the suburbs and beyond. Like you heard on that train announcement, Himes Park. That's where I went to school. Wood Street. That's you know a place that I spent some of my teenage years. Wolfstow Central, where we're going now. And then like Bethnal Green, we already have family there. Hackney Downs, family again. Almost every station, there's something relevant to us about it. Also, coming back the other way, there's a medieval path called the Black Path, 
which is where people used to have their cattle and they would drive them into market. So we, in London? Yeah, in London. So yeah. we're doing the reverse of that. And you can walk that and it weaves in and out of where the railway is. So I want to ask you about how folk music came into your lives because you, you were in other kind of bands before, weren't you? You did other kinds of yeah. music. Yeah, Ian and I have like, worked together for a really long time since we met at college in Walthamstone. Well, I'll let Ian talk because he kind of got me into it. Yeah, it's kind of my You started it, did you? Yeah, yeah. Because well, you're, you're trained as a sound engineer yeah. and, and you worked as a DJ kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. like uh, in the early 2000s, that was when all the dubstep and kind of grime stuff was going on. You know, being from London, that's the music you did, but I always grew up with traditional music in the house. Bands like Young Tradition, Mike Carthy, all of that kind of Dubliners. My mum, you know, was from London in the 60s, so she knew all those cats. But yeah, I had a sort of career as a kind of electronic musician. I would always get Nick to sing on our stuff because we'd been in bands and things like that anyway. And then I wanted to, to mix. There was two things that happened. I saw Martin Carthy, on a Folk Britannia documentary singing a song called Georgie, which if you follow the story of that song, is a, a woman pleading for the life of a husband or partner. And actually, if you read it, she's just shouting at the coppers in the middle of the street. And to paraphrase, she literally says, I'll fight you all, I don't care. You know, one at a time or all at once, it makes no difference to me. That There's all of that kind of stuff in there. And I was like, oh yeah, I get this. And then actually, weirdly, I saw June Tabor was on Jules Holland performing on the same show that Dizzy Rascal was performing on. And actually, the subject matter wasn't that different from the two songs. No different to people living in London now. Like, it's the same... It's the same kind of pressure, you understand it. And so that was your motive for getting into the music because you felt it had a contemporary resonance yeah, that yeah. needed to be expressed. Yeah, it really felt like that. It really felt like, you know. So when we'd done the electronic project, uh, there was a, a me and Nick, because that, so that finished, and then we kind of felt that we had some unfinished business really, wasn't it? Because we'd done the folk stuff and it felt like there was some potential here. And people talk about your music as being gritty and angry and having a punk attitude and all of that. Was that something you deliberately set out to do at the, at the Oh, start? I'm afraid there was no such plan like that. It, uh, really, I think there are a couple of things for me. I'd had my kids and I was like, OK, I really don't have much time to do anything. So whatever I do do, I've got to make it count. But it also coincided with Walthamstow was changing and no one was documenting what was going on there. And I felt really strongly like, all oh, these people coming in, they don't know, you know, how great that library used to be or when the market was like part of your background and it wasn't like a nostalgia thing it was I felt strongly about that culture that was just disappearing and people were having to move out and I'm one of them people that had to move out don't get me wrong some of that stuff you don't miss because it was horrible but I just felt it was really important So we've come off the train at Walthamstow. Where, where are you going to take us now, Ian? Just going to take you around the top of the market, uh, just so you can get a feel of the market. It's not a particularly busy market day, although there is some stalls on there. It's the longest market in Europe, apparently. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what sort of things will you buy there? Clothes, fruit, veg, pots, pans, uh, flowers, anything you want. Designer brands at a reasonable price, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No questions. No questions asked. asked yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, you know, if I go need to go and think, I love just walking up and down the market. It's a weird kind of uh, that solitude of being amongst loads of people who are doing stuff, so they've got no time to, for your nonsense. Do you know what I mean? So you can walk up and down, and it's like fine. And it's got one of the last remaining um, 
I don't even know how to say it properly. Manzi's, the yeah. pie and mash shop. It ain't changed. Let's walk Nothing's down. really changed. Yeah. Let's yeah. walk down. And I mean, it's amazing that the bowls of fruit and vegetables, mounds of them. Yeah, like there's still stuff here. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> yes. It's like prickly pear. Okay. You One know. pound upon it. London souvenirs. Look, any item of quid. Yeah. <laughs> you get a red bus here. And the wonderful, wonderful watermelons. This block's like maybe five years old. Yeah. There used to be a big arcade here, prefab 70s thing, and a big block of council flats. And then they kind of left it just flat. They'd flattened it off. But you knew there was something coming because they just left it too nice. So although there's change going on here, it's not gentrification type change, is it? I mean, it's not what, you know, what we saw in Spitalfields was very much what I'd expected to see, that there might be, a, yeah. there were co you know, hipster coffee stores on well, every corner and... You're about to see Are them. they starting here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Central Parade, it's got bakery in it, does great coffee. The loaves of bread are five quid. So it's starting. Maybe it's difficult to see just from a once walkthrough, but like, trust me, they've got the feet under the table. I think the cinema's a good example. So, yeah. So this is EMD Cinemas. It looks the like Beatles an old played here. here. It used to be a Granada cinema. It's got very long history. Actually, it's mine and Ian's cinema where we grew up. Saw Ghostbusters, Gremlins, all those, Back to the Future, all those things. It's a cocktail bar. So you brought us to the old Rosen Crown pub. Why, why is that? Um, it's one of the first places me and Nick played in our capacity as folk musicians. They run a very good club that's every Sunday and they have sing-arounds and first people to give us an opportunity, wouldn't it, really? Yeah. Well, well let's, let's go inside. I'm changing that. Are you open? All oh, right. <laughs> it's never normally so quiet, but I guess it's early, right? Yeah, yeah. Just a... Nick, you ready? Up London town I chanced to stray It was up cheap side I lost my way Up London town I chanced to stray It was up cheap side I lost my way Met a kind man and did see with kisses He saluted me I was up to the rigs, down to the jigs Up to the rigs of London town So we first started looking for songs that were kind of London-y in origin but then people were told us, well, there aren't really London songs. Not really, because people didn't really tend to value them or collect them. What's been collected a lot of is rural stuff. By the collectors, the cities were seen as unduly influenced by outside foreign music, as it were, or, or even our artistic angles was kind of frowned upon. We still managed to find songs with London in them, and lots of them seem to be don't go to that London because you'll get ripped off, you like. And this is kind of one of those songs, really. Now he asked me to the house of fame at the side of the ship in Watery Lane. Now he asked me to the house of fame at the side of the ship in Watery Lane. Now for supper he did call, thinking I would pay for it all. I was up to the rigs, down to the jigs, up to the rigs of London town. Between the hours of one and two he asked me if to bed I'll go Between the hours of one and two he asked me if to bed I'll go I said yes and free consent and to his chamber door I went I was up to the rigs, down to the jigs, up to the rigs of London town As 
Soon as he was fast asleep out of the bed I then did creep I searched his pockets and there I found Silver snuff box and ten pound Stole his watch and diamond ring I took the lot and locked him in I was up to the rigs, down to the jigs Up to the rigs of London town Now all young men wherever you be If you find a girl who's fast and free Now all young men wherever you be If you find a girl who's fast and free She'll do a wriggle and you'll do the same And it's up to the rigs of Watery Lane I was up to the rigs, down to the jigs Up to the rigs of London Town Have you changed the gender round? Yes. The song I read was about a bloke yeah, yeah, doing the yeah, stealing yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. abusing a woman who he slept with. You're just trying to tell a story that maybe offers some alternative... Well, maybe she's doing it because of this, or maybe she's going to yeah, do it because There's always reasons that. to do stuff. Like, uh, me and Becky, innit? The, Nick wrote about the riots. The London riots. London riots. But that came from a conversation I was having with my friends. I was annoyed because I felt that we'd let ourselves, like we've been working class people, kind of let ourselves down a little bit. It allowed everyone to go, oh, look what everyone's done. Look, they just, they don't know what they're doing. But then my mate Steve turned around to me and said, look, if we were 17, I phoned you up and I said, it's all kicking off at the market. And he was like, all right, I'm like, all right, yeah. We you might have gone down there yeah, and I got some new trainers, might well, you? I, you know? I, I, well, <laughs> I, my point was that I probably would have burnt down a big TV because, you know, like I don't need trainers. It's like more politically kind of motivated uh, approach to it but the point being that you can't really make a judgment on people f for what happens so now you've brought out what looks like a toy accordion yeah. is it really a toy accordion it, it is yeah and you can sort of tell because it, it's really noisy it's oh, mostly yeah. sort of r squeaky rattling um, it's bright red it's bright red my dad took me to a car boot sale which is one of my favorite places in the world to go and at that car boot sale i bought this for a pound thinking you know what the hell is it? I'll just get it, you know, collect instruments, you just do, don't you? So this is going to feature on me and Becky. Yep, this is one of the first songs we wrote for this band, mm -hmm. isn't it, really? So yeah. this is about the London riots, um, which, you know, in 2011, for a few days, it was pretty hairy, weren't it? Yeah, it was, yeah.
I want to ask you about the experience of singing here again. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, it was your first folk gig. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty empty now. I, I, I assume that there were people here when you did your first gig. Yeah, like, well, the club is upstairs, but yeah. it's full most of the time. Yeah. It's been going a long time, and the people that run it are just amazing. I really personally experienced such a culture shock when I went there for the first time because I could not believe there was a community of people that met regularly who, you know, are like so close to where Ian lives, so close to where we went to college and it's been going on for so long and then we were just totally unaware of it, totally unaware mm. of it. And that when you get there, there's a, there's a set of unspoken rules and... Um, Such as? Uh, like not coming in when the song is playing, uh, joining in with songs if you know the words, but in a sort of respectful, quiet way. All the things that people in the folk scene would take for granted now, but even as like, you know, quite prolific gig goers since our teens were still alien to us. This, yeah, no this, talking during songs. No like, talking. Absolutely no talking during songs. Like, oh my God, that was like. Did you really think that weird. was that was bad or or? It was just weird to rules? get used to. The, what their format particularly is, they'll have some floor spots so people get up and sing a song, and then the main act will come on, and it's just like. Hang on a minute, the person I was sitting next to just got up and sang a mad song about, you know, I don't know, Nelson's column or something. And then all the other people seemed to know it. And it just... <laughs> when it happens for the first time and you're like, you think you know live music and what that... It, you're like, wow, this is... This is amazing. This is the first place we saw Peter and Ken perform. Uh, Peter Webb and Ken Hall. And they're like one of those people who work so hard to maintain the folk tradition. We got them on that, that compilation, the English Folk Field Recordings. And, and just tell, let's just tell about this album, because this is an album oh, yeah. where you went and recorded folk musicians on location. A bit yeah. like this, actually. Yeah. A bit like yeah. Folk on Four. So you're in Martin Carthy's back garden yeah. and with John Kirkpatrick in a different place yeah. and with Pete and Ken. And, and you, you wanted to record everyone in the location where mm -hmm. their songs made sense. And that's exactly really the idea behind this podcast too. Yeah, yeah. Why did it make sense to you? It seemed that there'd be started to become a bit of a disconnect between people who we considered great folk musicians. They wouldn't consider themselves folk musicians because they don't see themselves as part of that uh, continuum. And it's like, no, you are. And, and one of the things was to capture them in a relaxed setting. So if it's in a pub, in their back garden, wherever it is, and record them performing and singing or however it was. Yeah, and yeah. you record your albums in, in kitchens and yeah, yeah. warehouses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Why? Was that just an economic necessity? It, it, it initially started out as an economic necessity. Uh, at the time when we started doing the folk band, we didn't actually have a... I'm a studio engineer. I usually have a studio. I'm usually working in a couple of different studios or I have a room. At the time, I didn't have anywhere. I had like time pressure because I had a young family, so yeah. it was just like... I'll come and see Ian twice a week. We'd just run through some tunes, like try and work some music, get it yeah, together. Yeah. Like if we'd have waited until we had all the luxuries and trappings of a studio, then the stuff just wouldn't have got done. Yes. And the latest album you recorded in the warehouse, yes, where Simon Foot yes. works. So Cy tell us about the rest of the band. Yeah. So Sai's our percussionist. He is the husband of Fran Foot, who is our harmony singer, uh, and there's also Ellie Wilson, who's our 
fiddle player. Who we're going to meet in a moment. We're going to meet in a moment. So, um, uh, so he's an IT technician and he works in a big warehouse and offices in Basildon. Uh, we used the office as a studio. And, and Simon's employers didn't mind this. They, Did you get they, in at the weekend? When yeah, they we got working? in at the weekend. Yeah. So we'd come in on a Friday night, set everything up, uh, come back on a Saturday morning, just record all the way through until pretty late Saturday night, do the same on Sunday, break everything down, clean it all up, no one would even know we were there. And I kind of like that, yeah. you kind of get in, do your thing, and then you're off and no one even knows it's happened. So let's leave the pub now. Where are you going to take me now on this great odyssey that you're taking me on through we're East London? We're going to Epping Forest, which is where all good cockneys go. So we're at Queen Elizabeth's Hunting Lodge and it says, there's a sign here that says, Henry VIII built me in 1543 and I'm still standing. Uh, and there's another sign over here about the Epping Forest Act of 1878, protecting and conserving Epping Forest. In the 1870s, the City of London worked alongside local people and philanthropists to save Epping Forest from development. And there are all sorts of signs around the courtyard in the lodge here. Um, which says, men must stop, no enclosure. Down with the lords of the manor, tonight at midnight, raise your bill hook. Support Tom Willingale, we want wood. From time immemorial we have lopped and we shall lop again. P.S. Bring a drink and a ladder. <laughs> and there's still cattle grazing just over the way here from this lodge. Here they are. Hi, Ellie. Hi. Lovely to see you. We've just been reading the signs in here about yeah. fighting the enclosures. Do you know about this, Ellie? Yeah. Well, he's my fourth great-uncle. Tom Willingale? Yeah. Wow, and um, he was one of the people organising... Uh, yeah, he was just a local man who lived in Loughton, and all the forest land for, obviously, centuries was owned by the Crown. And common people had the right to come and lop down trees and graze their animals and all of that kind of thing. And then enclosure started, and the forest was being basically taken over at an alarming pace, like being fenced off and taken over by people with lots of money and illegally been enclosed as well. And he was fighting his rights still, and he broke in to some land that had been enclosed and uh, chopped down some trees, along with some of my other relatives. Um, and they uh, ended up getting sent to prison. No, did they? <laughs> Thomas didn't, because Thomas was too old, but the others did seven days um, hard labour at Ilford Jowl. But it was a good end to the whole story. The Commons Preservation Society got wind of it, and that included members of uh, like William Morris and uh, the founders of the National Trust. And they gave him a thousand pounds to fight the case. And he basically stopped the enclosure happening in his area for a few years. Eventually then, the Corporation of London took over and then the forest was made for the people and for to, just to enjoy, and that's yeah. where we are now. So he played a small role, but an important role. A significant one, yeah. As a common man, you know, just there fighting for his rights. And, and effectively, this is the people's forest, isn't it? It totally yeah. is, yeah. yeah. So the people can come here and use it as an amenity. Don't know who owns the cows that are grazing on it now, but there are some well, cows still grazing on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, they've all got different brands on them to show where different areas they come from. But yeah, right. you can still do that now. Fantastic. Well, should we go for a bit of a walk yeah, in the forest? Yeah. So I'm glad to see you brought your fiddle anyway. That's I the have, main thing. Yes. Yeah. It's a huge space, this, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You've got recreation, so people come here on bank holidays or weekends or whatever. And then in times of trouble, like the Second World War and during the plagues, 
people would flee to here just to get out of London and away from like all the terrifyingness of the city. People come to do naughty things here as well. What um, sort of naughty things? Crime stuff. Right. Crime stuff. <laughs> crime stuff. stuff. Oh, okay. That's so, all you're saying. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I've heard. In the 80s, you used to hear a lot about gangland murders and stuff like that. And if you want to carry out some business that's sort of in secret, the forest is like probably one of the best places to come because relatively quickly you can disappear and no one's ever seen you. And it always has been the case. So Dick Turpin had a, a the hideaway. Highwayman. Yeah, the, the highwayman used to hide here, did he, he? Yeah, up in High Beach, a little bit further up. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's always been some dodgy goings-on in the forest. But. So will you sing a song for us here in Epping Forest? Yeah. I what mean, will you sing? We've got a song called All The Things, and All The Things is a song that we wrote about, well, the words are about Epping Forest burning down, and I can't really explain why that is, but... Um, the forest is a big sort of presence. You might not see it every day, but it, it's just part of your surroundings. Like, you grew up near it, you're still seeing it all the time, and, you know, all of us have connections to it.
<laughs> yeah, that was better yeah, for me. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I had the yeah, wasp. <laughs> well, I had a wasp running around. Yeah, 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 yeah it was just like it's getting closer and closer at my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been a nightmare if we got stung while we were. Oh man, that. I hate wasps. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, guys, I just want to say thank you so much for spending so much time with us today no and for taking us on this journey yes, through no the worries. east of, of London. It's been fantastic. I mean, this, I suppose if, if, if there's a word that occurs to me about your music, it's honesty. Do you know what I mean? It feels like it's really honest music and it's been a real joy to take part in it with you today. Thank Thanks you so much. Us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Stick in the wheel on the road to Epping Forest. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode of Folk on Foot, please rate and review us so others can find us. And please tell all your friends. To keep up with the latest news, why not sign up for our newsletter at folkonfoot.com. Other episodes in Season 2 feature John Bowden in the Loxley Valley, Seth Lakeman on Dartmoor, Kerry Andrew or You Are Wolf at the Brockwell Lido, Fisherman's Friends in Port Isaac, and Julie Fowlis on the shores of Loch Ness. And if you haven't caught up with season one yet, what are you waiting for? Six more episodes featuring the young'uns, Kareem Polwart, Sam Lee, Eliza Carthy and family, Steve Knightley and Cara Dillon. All available right now at folkonfoot.com or through your podcast app. Do have a listen. <laughs>